Welcome to Life of the School, episode 64. My name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher from Acton Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life to School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. This episode, I sit down with Dylan Crockett. Dylan is a science teacher at Southern Lee High in Sanford, North Carolina. At Southern Lee, Dylan has taught a wide variety of biology courses, including inclusion courses, honors biology, AP biology, and he created the school's zoology program. Outside of the of the classroom, Dylan has served as chair of the school's improvement team, academically, intellectually gifted, or AIG advisor, facilitator of the Advanced Placement PLC and the Biology PLC, and literacy leader. He has also served on the Curriculum and Instruction Committee, the AVID Site Team, the Multi-Tiered System of Supports Team, the District Literacy Working Group, and the District AIG Advisory Council. He also coaches the school's Science Olympiad and Quiz Bowl teams. Dylan continues to engage in research to improve his instruction. He has presented on teaching literacy and zoology courses at the North Carolina Science Teachers Association 2016 conference. He also published his article, Long Form Science, Teaching with Extended Texts, in The Science Teacher in 2017. He also presented on designing inquiry-based zoology courses at the 2018 NSTA Charlotte Area Conference. You can follow Dylan on Twitter at Crockett class. Welcome, Dylan. Hello, hello. How are you, Aaron? Great, great. Thanks for joining me on a, on a day off here um, of school. I don't know what the weather's like down in North Carolina today, but it's, uh, my, my thermometer said negative zero degrees this morning, which I didn't know was a thing. Um. <laughs> That's wild. Uh, it is not quite that cold here, but it is sunny and chilly. Yeah, yeah, I was, uh, we, we are, this is the, we had our first big snowstorm this past weekend. Um, uh, not that it was that big, but uh, yeah, it has dropped to bone chillingly cold here in, in Massachusetts today. Uh, do you all get snow days up there? Will you have time off school for that? Yeah, well, this one won't. I mean, this one hit on a weekend. So yeah, they, you know, it's funny. They, the, it used to be a, a matter of like, it was almost like stubborn pride that it, we really had to get walloped to have a snow day off in my district. At the last couple of years, we've had a, we have a different superintendent who has a, a little bit more of a cautious streak. Um, and uh, so we, we definitely get them. And uh, my son's, my son's school, it's a lot of mountains and uh, a lot of tough roads and uh, they do a lot of delays. And if, you know, if, if they don't think they could safely get the buses on all of those mountainous routes, they, they do call the schools pretty well. So, um, yeah, it's a little bit higher threshold than in North Carolina. I know that uh, like forecasts of snow, we'd have days off in North Carolina sometimes. But um. Oh, yeah. Um, I, if we see pictures of snow on the news, we'll cancel for a week. But it's always better to be safe than sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've had mixed feelings about it. I mean, I love I always say, say to my kids because we start late and we get out late. So we're adding days into June when we we have snow days and i'm like you know june is a really lovely month it's like possibly the best month of the year i would really like to be able to enjoy the outdoors in june <laughs> as opposed to being in a classroom after the state exam you know 
with extra time built in that's you know it's yeah you know, i love spending time with my kids but i always feel like the snow days break rhythm like we're working on something i kind of want to be do. in there the, these extra days at the end don't always feel like they have the same kind of intellectual rhythm that you have in the middle of the school year they're, they're not equivalent to me in terms of an intellectual rigor absolutely but uh maybe great times for field studies Oh yeah, I've added uh, a camera trap uh, behind my house in the in the woods and conservation land out there just to sort of see what kind of critters are out there. And I've been thinking about how I could figure out how to include some of those, maybe get some from the school, and maybe have some kids set them up, and, and seeing what kind of data we could get from that. And I think that you know after snow days would definitely be interesting data points that you could you could draw in. That sounds like a wonderful idea. So. Yeah, it's a. I've got I got all these pie in the sky ideas. I got to figure out how to turn them into curriculum sometimes. <laughs> and, and that always takes a lot of uh, mental work. Yeah. Um, and days to just sit down and and hash it out. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I have a feeling we're going to get into a lot about like how to include the outdoors and field studies into our talk uh, once we get into what you've been working on in the classroom. But uh, I want to start off asking you the question I like to ask everyone. Um, how did you become a science teacher? Uh, and I know you got some interesting background studies that they're, they're definitely going to be unique uh, when I get you in there. But uh, yeah, how'd you get into teaching? What led you into the classroom? Well, I knew I was going to become a teacher. Um, uh, I was one of those people who was teaching their pets how to do math in kindergarten. <laughs> uh, and so I knew that was my overall career path. I thought I was going to become a Latin teacher, um, which I, I have still not ruled out entirely uh, down the road. But uh, my college, UNC, didn't offer an undergraduate preparatory program for Latin teachers. They did offer one for science teachers. And so I took them up on that if that meant that I wouldn't have to pay for tuition for a graduate program. <laughs> And uh, I had some wonderful professors and great opportunities, student teaching through that program, and it led to my current job, which I uh, couldn't be happier about. All right. So uh, not the most obvious transition, Latin to biology. Um, <laughs> it can't be as simple as, well, they didn't offer me a Latin job so like or a Latin pathway, so I took biology. Why, why biology? What, what's the inspiration to get into the science classroom? Right. Well, um, I did have a lot of inspiration with my own high school science teachers, uh, both good and bad. Uh, I had a horrible experience taking high school biology. Uh, we, we didn't have a consistent teacher over the course of the semester, so we had uh, some, something like six or seven substitute teachers, and sometimes qualified teachers come in for short periods of time. And so it was a terrible experience. Uh, but I had fantastic teachers for uh, environmental science and physics who really had a passion for what they did, really had a passion for science. Uh, I had wonderful teachers in other subject areas, too. Uh, but it was uh, Miss Roberts, my, my science teacher as a sophomore and junior uh, in high school, that inspired me to consider science teaching as a, a viable option. And if I could be half of the teacher that she was, uh, I'd be off to a good start. All right. So environmental science brings you in. Um, it, is this a case where when you went to North Carolina, did you ever think about, you've already mentioned field studies and collecting that sort of stuff. Did you ever get that lure to become a, like a field biologist through those experiences? Or was it, you know, always just a, these are cool phenomena that I want to sometimes bring to the, bring in front of young minds? There were definitely people in the biology department at Carolina who were that type of biologist, but it's such a um, 
a high concentration of pre-med students mm -hmm. that the parts of the department, the cellular and, and the molecular sides are, are really explosive in the research that's going on. And so I, I couldn't really be drawn away from a, a traditional biology major um, learning about all of the levels of study from the molecular up through the ecological levels. Um, it, it was really attractive to me to be able to learn the ins and outs of organisms, big and small. Mm. And, and that's something that still motivates me today to, to impress into my students that there's a lot going on here that we can't see um, at, at both ends. Uh, and it's really cool to get to study it. All right. So you wrap up that undergraduate work um, and then you did this thing where you went into South Carolina to, to get some graduate work. Um, how did the timing work on that? Did you do that before you started? Uh, did you go to Clemson before you were in the classroom or uh, were they continuous? Did you work in Clemson? I, I'm trying to remember my timeline for you about yeah, what I'm happened actually... after your undergrad. Yeah, I'm actually finishing up the Clemson program now. OK, um, it's they have an online a master's in biological sciences specifically designed for classroom teachers to oh. work on part-time and um uh, i'll be done this may oh, wow. uh, i've been working on that sort of off and on for the past two or three years uh, but it's definitely helped uh fill in some gaps uh in my understanding of different aspects of biology you know i had never taken a course in plant biology um i never took microbiology until this graduate program and so it's definitely helped my depth of understanding of the discipline for um, AP biology in particular. So this program is, is it, is it hybrid? Do you go down to Clemson at all? Or is it like everything is in straight online um, graduate program? Uh, it's straight online. I've actually never been to the Clemson campus. <laughs> I hope to take a visit there during spring break uh, this semester and uh, get ready to walk across the stage this May. Oh, wow. That's a, uh... That's pretty cool. I haven't heard of, I guess I have heard of a few distance master's programs, um, but I can't, it's, it's a, I'm curious how you would learn, uh, I guess with all the tools we have now, you, you could definitely t learn the micro and plants without the hands-on lab component. Um, I think for me, that seems like it would be a crucial, a crucial piece to learning those things. It is. And I was very skeptical of an online program at first, um, but it was, it was actually advertised in um, the uh, NABT publication, The American Biology Teacher. Mm -hmm. And and when I looked it up and heard from a few other people that were part of the program, I was convinced that it would be helpful, and, and it certainly has been. Um, I would absolutely recommend it uh, for someone who wants some graduate credits in biology uh, and still wants to stay in the classroom full-time. Oh, that's, that's, a, that's a great service. Um, I'll have to keep that in mind for Next time I get my uh, recertification, I was always finding those online biology classes is always challenging. Um, <laughs> even every few years, uh, I'd right. like to get that extra depth to throw in, um, challenge myself in those different areas. Although it has gotten a lot easier, I will tell you. Twenty years ago, um, trying to find in-subject area professional development for recertification was very, very hard. Yeah. Oh, I bet. Um, even in the past years, the number of the, since I started teaching, the number of resources available online has seemed to explode. Um, uh, between graduate programs, uh, even just you know, online education programs. Wow. All right. So um, here, let's get into the, the, the you working in the classroom. So uh, we had mentioned a little bit before that, that you worked, uh, you did your student teaching at, in Carborough uh, with our friend Robin Bellary, who I had on. Gosh. Like maybe two years ago, I had Robin on, um, and so you got a little bit of experience there, and then you shifted over, and then was suddenly your first job. 
It was. Um, so I did student teach at Carborough High School. Um, Robin Valeri was in the classroom next door. Um, I was actually student teaching under Tom Brown, mm-hmm. uh, who is now retired, but he was an excellent biology and physical science teacher. Um, and uh, as soon as I graduated from Carolina, I got a job offer from Southern Lee High School here in Sanford, and I've been here ever since. Nice. And so you, you've taught a lot of different courses there, as I think almost every young teacher does. I don't know many young teachers who don't get in, in this classroom right. and in that classroom. I think that's that's par for the course your first few years. Uh, but one of the things that um, I noticed from your background is that you started the zoology uh, program. And I know you actually had a, a post um, on your class website about like why I'm teaching zoology. But I thought it would be interesting for you to maybe share your thoughts about the importance of teaching something like zoology to students. And then also you know, find out how it's going. How does it, how does the mission match up with the experience um, for why you started this program? Yeah, absolutely. Um, teaching zoology is something that I, I've really enjoyed doing. Um, you know, we don't have the uh, next generation science standards here in North Carolina. And so um, I'm not quite sure how the, our biology standards match up to that, but our standards in North Carolina are very cellular heavy, very molecular. Um, There's not a whole lot of room for organismal biology. And so one of the common complaints is that we have every student that comes through our building is taking this biology course, and they're not really understanding uh, organisms that they might come across on a daily basis, uh, organisms that live in real ecosystems, even though, you know, we teach them what mRNA and tRNA are. Um, you know, they, they don't have quite an appreciation for biodiversity uh, for, with the animal side and with the plant side. And so we figured it would be nice if we had an elective available on campus for these students to take where maybe they're the type of student that is not wanting to take an AP science class or they're not wanting to take an advanced class like chemistry or physics, but they do want a science class uh, and they want one that's on a topic that's interesting to them. So we came up with the idea of teaching zoology. Um, and uh, it was a struggle for the first couple of semesters uh, that I was teaching it because in my mind, my understanding of zoology was uh, very traditional. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I learned zoology, it was a march through the phyla. <laughs> uh, you begin maybe with protists and then you start with peripherins and then you move your way up through chordates and, and then you take your final. Um, and I never moved away from the phylum by phylum approach. But I absolutely found it essential to change the framework of how I was teaching each classification of organisms. Um, One of the things that a student said to me, either the first or second year that I was teaching zoology, um, and, you know, at at any time you're teaching a new subject, pacing becomes an issue. (laughs) Yeah. So I would find that I would be invert, it's still in invertebrates, and it would be, you know, almost Thanksgiving. and, And we teach on a block schedule. And a student said to me, when are we going to learn about real animals? Um, <laughs> and, you know, of course, we had been learning, except for, for protists, about real animals all semester. But it's been, you know, beetles and starfish and, <laughs> and sea jellies and anemones and worms and things that they never understood to be animals, um, you know, the same way that they understand zebras and elephants and tigers to be animals. Yeah. And so it became my goal then to make the course designed such that um, it would be more inquiry-based, where they would uncover knowledge about the animal kingdom, um, 
just by exploring animals that they had never realized existed, by bringing in um, more specimens, doing more classification activities, um, rather than um, you know traditional lectures and memorizing uh, anatomy mm-hmm. and physiology of uh, exemplary animals. I think your description of sort of classic zoology is sort of what I have in my mind. Uh, you know, I teach a and a fairly traditional school system and for a really long time and i think we've been morphing away from this uh the last four to five years in particular but in our biology classroom we would have a uh, a unit on plants where we would Mm -hmm. talk about the four major categories and then we'd have a a, something on animals and we would just sort of blast through you know nine major phyla um in a couple weeks and that was our sort of survey we did sort of surveys of the different different groupings and that was sort of our our quarter three was like survey of different kingdoms and we would go through um and i think that was sort of the pushback and we've had sort of a discussion from different teachers about whether or not that that sort of teaching fits in with the rest of what we do and the answer was we didn't feel like it did uh we we felt like we'd moved to a very inquiry student-centered approach but we we sort of have changed that around and we still discuss those things but students leave honors biology now and they don't know the difference between you know uh the different types of uh you know worms like a flatworm versus a roundworm versus segmented worm right it's not a big deal um but if we were to give them a handful of derived characters um that were useful in in building a a cladogram they would be able to match those up and then build a cladogram so they'd be able to apply the evolutionary construct like that's sort of the direction we've gone Absolutely. And I think um, in my zoology course, I tried to strike a balance between the two. Mm -hmm. If it were just teaching, uh, you know, the characteristics of each phylum, it really did not serve the needs of of maybe 95 percent of my students that would sign up for that class. Um, And, you know, the zoology classes were a true cross section of my building. And so I would have students in there who were ninth graders who had never taken biology before, to seniors who had um, severe chronic cases of senioritis. (laughs) Um, And I would have all types of students from sort of low um, academic interest and low ability to um, uh, highly gifted students. Uh, And most of them are just not interested in learning about nematodes um, and, and, you know, how the pseudocelum is different from uh, acelomates versus uh, eucelomates. But... Um, I I still wanted them to get that content. Um, I wanted them to have an appreciation for those adaptations. And so I restructured it so that those sorts of things would come later after I would give them a sampling of worms and have them try to figure out the differences and similarities between them. Mm. Um, And, and it it was a fun time. Um, Now I, I do have to say I no longer teach the course. Um, yeah, because you don't have time. <laughs> I, I, I do not. Um, for the past couple of years, I had three to four preps every semester uh, between uh, standard biology and honors and maybe an AVID class and AP classes and zoology. And so this year I passed it on to um, a new science teacher that we have in our department, uh, Jessica Maldonado, and she has taken it and she is running with it. And I couldn't be more excited for her. Um, and I might go back to it in a couple of years. And I'm even more excited for that because then we'll have a couple different brains in the department who have taught zoology to collaborate with. Yeah. Um, and so right now I'm mostly focused on uh, classes that have biology in their name, <laughs> uh, but uh, that could change. 
uh, next year, or the year after, who knows? Well, I know that one of your one of your goals when you put this out there was to help students develop a deeper appreciation for nature and specifically the nature around them. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in the course, did do you? How did you feel like that mission? met up with the students' experiences? It sounded like you made a shift after a couple of years, but how did that, how is that working? How is that mission going? Um, I would say mixed results, uh, but I would say that optimistically. Yeah. Uh, when I was first advertising the course um, and describing it to students, um, because I teach in a very rural area, I would have students that would ask me, do we get to dissect deer? <laughs> um, all sorts of, of, of wonderful comments. Um, and, and we never did end up doing things like dissecting a deer or um, uh, you know, those those sorts of outdoorsy things. But we would do things like go bug catching. Um, and when we would talk about things like arthropods and insect diversity, these students had no clue how many species of insects existed in the world, let alone are outside. We have a pond right next to campus. And so... Um, I would try to get zoology scheduled in the afternoon where, you know, it's warmer in the day, insects are out and they're buzzing around. Um, and it, it was wild to see some of those students try to chase down dragonflies and uh, go hunting for beetles. And um, it, I don't think I could characterize the realizations that they made in a definitive way, mm-hmm. but but things like the expressions on their faces, their attitudes towards the class, it made me um, relieved that I was able to give them that experience and that opportunity um, just to go outside um, and to get away from a classroom and to get away from textbooks uh, for a little bit and and to appreciate the outdoors around them. Um, and then I would also, we would do a couple of field trips every semester. Um, the North Carolina Zoo is not far away from us. There's also a tiger rescue right down the road. And so we would see, um, you know, animals that you would not find in your backyard, but um, do find around here in these enclosures. Uh, and, and it was a great time. Yeah, it's always interesting The you know, the, I have a, a colleague who I speak to a lot about this. And, he you know, we, we have this sort of expression we throw around when we're, we're working on designing a project that, you know, no student ever comes back and goes, oh, you remember that lecture on October 10th? That was, I so remember that. Uh, what they remember uh-huh. is they remember the projects. Um, right. But remembering the projects can go double-edged on that because the projects have to have um, – an experiential component, something that's going to have an emotional hook to it, but it also has to have like parameters on it that make it sort of achievable and have an arc to it. Um, and I think that sometimes when you have these ideas about going outside and doing that, you can have it so that it's just experiential and it's like fairly superficial. And then on the extreme end, you could also have this experiment, you know, experience where you're trying to, you know, have them collect this many bugs or how many do, do this type of thing and like have it really, you know, be this large thing that ties together. And those are just so hard to construct. And so they, I think they that, are difficult. Yeah. I think with your diversity of students, I think that would have been hard because what the needs of some of the students would actually that what I would consider sort of, you know, shallow experiential thing, that's probably the level that they were ready to engage on. But others would have wanted something meatier uh, to go into. And so was there any like differentiation for students who wanted to dive deeper, um, you know, opportunities to, to, I don't know, do extra credit or a side project or an honors project or something like that? Did that sort of thing ever tie in? Oh, absolutely. Um, and, you know, over the course of the 
years that I taught zoology, I probably have enough binders full of activities that I had created to teach it, you know, three or four times over and use totally different things. Um, and, and so, you know, some of those classes, those students just going outside and realizing, you know, what all of the, you know, quote unquote bugs are that are out there, um, that met their needs. And then I had others where they, um, needed to do a research project. And so one semester I had students um, watch three TED Talks, each about a different type of arthropod, and then um, pick one of those and, and construct a, a research assignment about uh, what are scientists doing with that species? How is that related to the specific characteristics of arthropods? Um, and then how is it affecting society? Um, so there was one that did the colony collapse disorder mm-hmm. um, and, and honeybees. There's one who worked on um, uh, how we can use spider silk mm-hmm. as, um, you know, in different uh, biotechnology applications. And so, you know, having the mixture of students between low and high, I, I did have to create those sorts of assignments to satisfy both. You're, you're 100% right. Uh, I was never not creating a rubric for that class when I was teaching it, yeah. um, and it was uh, it was a little exhausting. Um, but now I have binders full of rubrics, uh, yeah. which <laughs> is yeah, exciting. Yeah, it's a, it's a wealth it's a wealth of things. I've been throwing out binders for the last like couple of weeks. Um, I realized if I have things in binders, I don't use them. I only use my digital digital files now. Um, so. oh, I, I work in the opposite way. If it's if it's on the computer, it can get lost. But if it's in a binder and I can touch it, I know it's there and I can <laughs> I can find it elsewhere and modify and, and make copies and uh, get it uh, in the classroom. Yeah, as long as you I mean, it's similar to the digitally, as long as you're collating it and like going into it, the the problem is I had I had as I said stacks of binders that I just stopped going into. Right. It is very easily easy to accumulate a lot of papers as a teacher. Um, that's probably a fair understatement. So one of the other things that we mentioned briefly, uh, you know, I brought it up in the intro. Uh, I listed like I don't know like nine or ten thousand uh, extracurricular activities that you are involved with. Some of which Maybe are eleven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some some of which are like you working with other teachers and some with students. And so it seems like you're like constantly working with other teachers or students to help improve your school community. So um, I, I'm curious a little bit because you are a young faculty member at your school. How has it been being on all of these various committees? Do you feel like you're... Your voice is a as like a key component to building the school community. Obviously, you see some value in there, but I guess you know what has it been like for you to be on all of these different committees? Uh, it, it's actually been a lot of fun, um, and it has has brought some life into what um, I feel like my position is in the building. Um, I enjoy working with my colleagues. I would say almost as much as I enjoy working with my students and, and I don't work on all of those committees every year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm still on the school improvement team, but I'm not chair this year. Um, I'm still working on literacy this year, but I'm not a building literacy leader this year. Um, and so I think my building, we don't have, you know, a, an echelon of veteran teachers that are, um, against the newer teachers in the building stepping up into leadership roles. Mm. And so that has, um, there, there's been very little resistance. Um, and those of us who are here that are at the, our beginning of the career, our careers, uh, working alongside those that are nearing the end of their careers and, and keeping the, the building moving mm-hmm. and growing. 
Um, and so uh, I have a very supportive administration who very rarely tells me no when I ask <laughs> uh, to do something. Um, and, and they're they're supportive of me and they trust that whatever I want to do in the building, I have the student's best interests uh, in mind. Uh, and so what I've been working on most this year has uh, been with our gifted program. Mm. Um, uh, and so I uh, adopted the title of uh, AIG advisor this year to, to help out those students in our building. Yeah, I mean, I guess that you, you answered a little bit, you know, uh, I've been in schools where I feel like I've had administrators who constantly are coming up to you and saying, oh, it would be great if you could join. We start form this committee on this. Can you join this? Can you join this? But it sounds like you're initiating substantial amounts of you being part of these programs, that you're seeking out these things to, to join. Is, does that seem like a fair characterization? Oh, oh, absolutely. I have started as many committees as I've been asked to be on. <laughs> uh, and that's probably the best model of leadership that my administration can use, uh, you know, where they're distributing responsibilities among the building and using talents that are in the building to the advantage of the building. Mm. Um, and so, you know, the past two years, I've been working more closely with our AP teachers. We have a lot of focus in this county since it's rural. We have a, a high concentration of English language learners. Um, our students do not have um, the background. A lot of times that you get students, um, like when I was student teaching at Carborough High School, uh, a lot of those students would be the children of people who work at UNC Chapel Hill. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we don't really get that around here. And so uh, a lot of the focus is on the lower end of the spectrum. And so the past two years, we've been working harder to build up the rigor in the building across our honors and AP classes and come to some consensus with what goals we want to have, what skills we want to have those students to have by the time that they walk across our stage, um, uh, hopefully with more than, than just a high school diploma. Yeah, and, and the, you, you mentioned it. I, every time I hear about the idea of AP, I think of accessibility on sort of two levels, accessibility from a preparation standpoint, and then accessibility once you get into that course. And mm -hmm. so I think a lot of, I mean, personally, I often think from a teaching standpoint, I always worry about can a student who wants to stretch and take the AP class, how clear and transparent is it what they need to do if they maybe you know, they weren't the greatest middle school student, and so they didn't take quite as rigorous courses as a freshman and sophomore, right. and they want to take AP as a junior or senior, how rigorous, how big of a jump is it from what they might have had in their background to what we're going to ask them to do, and am I able to clearly communicate to them ways to fill in the the possible gaps or how to scaffold things so that they can access them. But it sounds like you're also having the conversation in terms of a rigor from the students as they come in and how do you prep them in sort of a pre-AP way. Is that is that fair? Is it on both ends? Uh, it, it is on both ends. In fact, uh, what we did this semester was we gave out a survey to all of our students in AP courses on campus, um, asking them what skills that they felt like they um, – a need to work on the most, uh, what they felt like the most difficult aspects of our AP courses were. And a lot of what they said goes back to, um, you know, sort of central tenets of teaching. Uh, they are having difficult times uh, reading analytically and, and writing critically, and they're having difficult times with time management and, and you know, the volume of material that they learn for each unit um, they're not sure how to digest all of that material and, and understanding the vocab. Uh, and so 
those sorts of things across the board we've noticed um, are going to be the focus of creating those scaffolds in our pre-AP classes to get them trained a little bit better, to get them uh, using some of those AP skills a little bit more so that once they're in our AP classes, they can be more successful and we can continue to build those up rather than trying to start from the bottom. Well, that's, that's, I, I love the idea of teachers getting together across the disciplines. You know, I teach in a school that is 2,000 students, and so I, I have no idea how many AP classes we have. But the idea of getting the AP teachers from all of the various disciplines together in a PLC, like, it seems daunting. I mean, in, like, we're, we've started to do that a little bit in science because mm-hmm. we have, you know, two AP physics teachers, an AP environmental science teacher, two AP biology teachers, and the two AP chem teachers. So we've been starting wow. as like, so we have nine AP teachers in science. Um, we, we probably have about nine total. Yeah. So, so we've had, we've, cause we're, uh, we're embarking on a schedule change in our building. And so it, it really is going to dramatically reorganize how we approach teaching AP in the building in the schedule change. And so we're, ha- we're starting to have discussions about what that means and how do we, how do we make these shifts in terms of our time? Um, we're going to be very blessed with some extra time uh, in some ways from the new schedule, but it's also going to create a very different different rhythm to the way the course rolls out. And we also want to make sure that we're mindful of not, for lack of a better term, abusing that time. Uh, it'll be very mm-hmm. easily for us to suddenly be able to give like two hours of homework in the new schedule, which I it realized me. And I was like, oh, God, we can't do that. We have to make sure that we're like right. mindful of when we restructure, we're thinking about the, the time course and not over loading in certain ways and and being balanced. And so we've started to have these conversations as a group, which we've never even had before. Um, we've been, mm-hmm. you know, the two biology teachers teach together, the two chem teachers, the two physics, the enviro teacher has a little bit of crosstalk with the bio folks, but it's been very, very loose. And we're so we're starting to have some of those conversations there. But the idea of having, you know, the gosh, I don't know how many it would be like the 30 or so AP teachers that we have probably have in the building total get together and yeah. talk would be I think it would be fantastic, but it sort of sounds daunting to me to the, and also you, you mentioned sort of the personality difference, sort of veteran teachers. Um, I think that you would find, and not necessarily in a negative way, I think that you'd have people with very different um, opinions and agendas just based off of mm-hmm. anecdotal conversations. I think that there would be a, it would probably take us three years to set up <laughs> some commonalities amongst the diversity of group, you know, of that, that large group with the experience that would be coming into that room. So. And, and we faced a, a little bit of that challenge. You know, we're fewer in number, uh, but there are still some of those AP teachers in the building that, you know, want to teach every possible ounce of content in their discipline available, and they want the students to read textbooks from cover to cover. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then we have other AP teachers that want, you know, their students to have very positive experiences and not necessarily learn all of the material in the curriculum framework, but um, want to get a familiarity with it so they could take it in college mm-hmm. and be more successful. And so we do have a variety of different perspectives among our AP teachers uh, coming to the table. But um, that doesn't make it more challenging for us to come to terms on some commonalities, especially when um, it, it's sort of core things like agreeing that we want our students to be able to do more reading and writing in our classes, mm. um, agreeing that we want to use more higher order thinking activities rather than rote learning in our classes. Um, and so, you know, the diversity of the opinions has really strengthened our conversations rather than create roadblocks. 
And so I, I'd recommend trying it out um, <laughs> to have a meeting with the AP teachers, e- even if it's not, um, you know, to to create a concrete list of expectations in AP classes across the board. But when we started this last year, it was really just to have conversations. Um, and uh, it was also to address a problem that we're having school-wide is uh, decreasing enrollment in our AP classes. Uh, we have uh, a very strong community college in our district. And so uh, we have a lot of students taking dual enrollment courses oh. uh, to the detriment of our AP classes. Um, and so coming together to talk about what skills the AP classes are providing to students that differ from those that they might be getting from their dual enrollment classes has been part of our way to create um, a, a basis in recruiting. Yeah. Is is the dual enrollment, um, if they're taking a community college course, is there a an equity and access issue with that? Is it so only some students can access that? Um, whereas an AP course, because it's built into the day, everyone can access it? Or is it a case of maybe the dual enrollment courses just aren't right for some students? Um, I, I, I guess a question would be like, I have very little experience with dual enrollment, so. Right. You know. um, if anything, I think our students might have more access to dual enrollment because of the number of online courses that are mm-hmm. available through the community college. Um, I think we have many more students use those rather than seated classes at the community college campus. Um, in fact, our media center is is mostly a, a holding room for students taking those online courses. Huh. Um, and, you know, those they can fit into any schedule of the day, whereas, you know, AP Biology is only offered during this block, during this semester this year. Uh, and so if they had something else that they needed to take during that block, it wouldn't be quite as accessible. Um, but also they get the same weighted GPA uh, credit from a community college course as they would an AP course. And so, you know, while AP biology is offered for one semester, they could take biology and get, um, you know, two semesters of the same weighted credit through the community college. Um, And that's also a guaranteed credit for them. And so there's a lot of, you know, benefits to taking the the dual enrollment course. but, you know, those are also community college instructors that might have different instructional goals than an AP teacher on campus. Um, you know, we would like to get our students prepared for uh, a variety of possible post-secondary options, um, including, you know, potentially um, more rigorous campuses across the state um, where the learning expectations are different than a community college course. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's the other thing is that uh, and having taught some online classes to high school students, not all students can manage that. I mean, that's, you yep. know, the, the students will sign up for those courses, but not everybody has the, you know, even if they have the discipline to, to go through the course, they don't have that adult in the room uh, to ask questions to. It, there's a there's a set of skills involved with that that I have. I found that when I taught online classes in the high school level they basically ended up being default honors classes uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> because it was my honors level students. It was basically similar to the kids who were successful in APs. Those were the students who could advocate for themselves when they had a question. They would be mm-hmm. able to find the resources and do all that stuff. And for my students who weren't quite there, that things would fall through the cracks and they wouldn't do as well. And there wasn't the, the network of support to help them get through and really develop a good understanding of what we were trying to talk about. 
And it could be in part my lack of understanding of how other disciplines operate, but I think particularly for science and math courses, taking those online, unless you have those prerequisite skills where you are self-driven and you understand how to get access to information that might seem confusing, um, the stakes are higher Mm. uh, rather than if you were taking maybe a psychology or sociology course. And so I I try to recommend to students that if they want to take college biology, try AP biology first (laughs) um, and then go on to college and then ace your college biology class because you learned it here first. Yeah. Yeah. And they'll, and it isn't going to be a hundred percent the same. They'll get some extension there, but correct. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we've already brought up uh, AP a while uh, for a while and your AP course is structured very differently than mine in the sense that you teach, as you said, a block. Mm -hmm. So you have it the first half of the year, you have a block. You just, I think you just got your first group for the year to finish up and you will, I guess, later on have some afternoon review stuff with them later on as you get closer to the AP. But how is teaching AP going in the first couple of years? I think it's been the most fun course that I've been able to teach um, and the most difficult course that I've been <laughs> able to teach. Um, you know, get the, the, the topics that are in the curriculum framework um, are, are just phenomenal to teach. You know, the regulation of gene expression um, is, is so much fun. And that's that's just what we ended on um, for the semester. Um, but time is a big issue since I only have them for 90 days, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, typically minus about 10 for hurricanes. Um, <laughs> yeah. it, there's not a whole lot of time. And so I've struggled with two things. Um, one, whether or not I think they need to be exposed to all of the content and um, versus how much of class time I should devote towards more inquiry-based learning. Um, and then, you know, secondly, do, do I feel like they should be able to take the AP exam and reasonably get a four or a five. Um, You know, a lot of the students that I have, this is the first AP course they've ever taken Mm -hmm. and they might not have been honors level or in honors level classes previously. And so there's um, a wide gap between where they're coming in at and then what it would take to get those top scores on the exam. Um, And so it's constantly a process of me reflecting about what instructional strategies I'm using, what my ultimate goals for those students are. And so right now I've been settled on the idea that um, I'm trying to get them as much content as possible at a, as reasonable a pace that allows them to comprehend it uh, while injecting as many lab experiences uh, that I can um, at, at the detriment of, of not finishing the curriculum by January. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, you know, if you have 80 or 90 days, uh, realistically, when you figure in assessment days and other things like that, you really only have, you know, uh, of the 50 some odd essential knowledge uh, portions, and then there's learning objectives under each of those. Right. There's only so many learning objectives that a student can reasonably process in a given day. Absolutely. So, for some of those essential knowledge points, yeah, you could do even a couple of them in a day. But mm-hmm. more often than not, you're going to have to take an essential knowledge and you're going to have to bridge it over several days. And realistically, you're going to want to have a, a looping back and connect it to later concepts. 
And so if you really want students to engage and struggle as, as, a, as a constructivist, having that constructivist idea of engaging mm-hmm. in struggle and then cycle back to check for understanding in a new context, it isn't reasonable to, you know, I avoid the word coverage, but um, even expose, right. expose students to all of the, the language and the learning objectives that, that students would be, that, w- that are written out in the framework. So maybe that's the best way of framing that. Yeah, it's a constant negotiation between um, breadth and depth, mm-hmm. um, and and really at every topic. Um, one thing that I started to do, I, I sort of changed my philosophy midway this past semester in teaching AP with them when I was reading through requirements for national board certification. Uh, one of the things uh, required by one of the components is to have students do uh, self-reflection on their own performance on formative assessments. And so I started to implement more formative assessments um, throughout the semester for um, the topics and have students gauge their learning and then you know, essentially tell me what direction they feel like they need to move, whether they need more time uh, doing more activities with that topic or they're ready to um, try out the next one. Um, and that uh, slowed down my pace a little bit um, because it takes time to reflect mm-hmm. and process. but uh, I think for those last couple of units where I started to do that, students um, were getting more out of what we were doing, and they felt that they had a, um, you know, when students are able to hold themselves accountable and they have the confidence in their ability to do that, I think they're having a better experience and they're getting they're getting more biology out of it. Yeah, I, I've personally been struggling a little bit about this um the pacing component myself in the sense that I feel like there, I have a group of students and they're just the ones that we were talking about earlier that maybe that don't have the, the advocacy skills, the, the intellectual background of knowing what they know and knowing how well they know it before mm-hmm. they get to an assessment piece. And I feel like they have this sort of fallacy of coverage. They feel like yep. I, I was given this homework. I took, notes on this video or I took notes on this textbook section. He then in class showed me a challenge problem, which I may or may not have gotten right. But when Mm -hmm. he went over the answer, I followed the reasoning of the answer. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't really engage at enough depth in their background work. But they think they understand it. They think they understand it. And then when we get to these assessment questions, these AP assessment questions, which bring in a whole new data set and ask them to draw a connection between this and this, they're falling a piece to pieces. And mm-hmm. this is not all of my students, but it's the students I was mentioning earlier that I want to improve the accessibility of the curriculum. Right. And so it's almost like, and I was saying this to, to my colleague the other day, I feel like because of the way my school has dealt with sort of the phrase assessment over the last few years, we have all of these like assessment free weekends and we have these like homework free weekends. And so like you can't have like on a long weekend, you can't ass- you can't have a test on the Tuesday after a long weekend. You can't have any major, you can't have any homework due on Tuesday after that. But because of sort of the rule nature of how they've set up these components and not that I disagree with philosophically what they've done, what it's done is it's created this game of teachers of figuring out how they're assessing in a very different way and I've eliminated a lot of what I never called formative check-ins like little low stakes quizzes and things like that I've eliminated a lot of those from the curriculum just from a time standpoint and I do a lot of still informal stuff but I'm not I'm not raising sort of their blood pressure enough 
for quizzes mm-hmm. <laughs> because of all of our rules and and not like stressing them out. But I think that there is something to be said about you have a quiz on this day and you need to do a little prepping and you need to like you need to have a little bit of stress a little bit more often mm-hmm. so that there's a little bit more stakes. Like I've lowered a little too much of the stakes on my formatives mm-hmm. and I've allowed students to have this fall- fallacy of coverage and not get enough of those, nope, you fell down, nope, you didn't do this, that have very little stakes to them so that they can go, oh, no, I need to really study this more. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to now resolve that without adding in, like, too many more quizzes. But, like, I'm trying to figure out how to match the philosophy of not over-assessing the students, but assessing them at that right depth so that they have a realistic sense of whether they get it or not, particularly those students who don't have those skills. Yeah, I'm running into a similar issue. In fact, you know, I give my students surveys to complete throughout the semester. Mm-hmm. I was just reading through their responses to their final survey. And one of the questions that I ask them um, is what grade do they think that they have earned in the class and, and explain why or what grade they think they deserve. And a lot of them overshoot their grade and then they justify it based on the fact that they've done all of the assignments that I've given them and they turn in their work on time and and they're not late to class. And, you know, all of those are, are great attributes to have, and, and it makes them good students to have in a class. Um, but it doesn't reflect their understanding of AP biology. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, similarly, you know, they understand notes in class, they understand maybe lab activities and, and what we do in class, and then they get to the, the assessment, uh, the summative assessment, and they are a little blown away, where they, um, they lose their confidence and they realize, oh, I didn't really understand that to the depth that I needed to. Um, and so I've, I've not come up with a solution on then how to give them access to understanding the, the depth that they haven't reached yet um, un- until we get to those summative assessments. The formative assessments are, are what I started to do to show them some of those AP questions earlier on um, at, at a s- smaller scale and move a little bit more slowly. Um, but it's it did not radically change their summative assessment grades. Hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that's something I still struggle with, too. Um, what what was the philosophy behind your school in those new rule shifts? Well, so there's been a I mean, we've had a lot of discussion about it's gone from it started in a place of stress. I think that would be the bigger, you know, like mm-hmm. like and and I don't think we had a great conversation about this, but there have been some uh, signs of unhealthy stress in our school community, for, which included uh, we've had suicides in our community from students. We've had mental health crises, the number of uh, hospitalizations um, and mental health interventions beyond just student hospitalizations have been steadily on the rise. And I think this mirrors some of the national statistics that we've seen. But the the strain of services that the school is trying to provide from a mental health standpoint has been very troubling, uh, I think, to, to all of the people in the building who care about kids. And so from that, there have been a variety of different changes. Um, we've moved to a later start time based off of some of the sleep data uh, that we were collecting from our students and also some of the recommendations from experts from Stanford coming in and say, this is troubling. We work with, you know, hundreds of schools around the country and we've never seen 
data yeah. like this. Um, we're a high pressure, you know, high expectation community. Gotcha. Students are expected to go to four year colleges. Students are expected to be ex- do exceedingly well. So th- there was definitely that as a backdrop. There, we've also had some uh, starts of conversations. I don't really feel like I've been a little frustrated with it because I don't really feel like we've finished these conversations. But just meaningfully about like, what does assessment mean? Like, what should assessments look like? And I've had a lot of you know smaller conversations with with colleagues and that sort of thing. But I feel like as a community, we're very torn between everybody wants what is best for students, but that is a very fuzzy, amorphous statement. Um, right. Because you can have reasonable adults who come to the room and can say the same words: "We want what's best for students." And in their mind, it means totally different things. Um, Mm -hmm. For some, it's like, well, we should not have students sign up for these courses that are going to be be beyond what they're, you know, reasonably able to do. And we do have students who, a small portion of students who massively overload their schedules. We don't have great ways of stopping them from doing that. Parents can easily override levels and signups. And so you have students who take four and five AP courses uh, and they're, they're not really prepped to do that and they're really stressed out and they're not sleeping and they show these signs of not good health and not good balance. And a lot of families, you can work with them and do that, but not all families are necessarily supportive of the recommendations that the adults in the building are making. And then there's other people who are like, no, we've got to change our, we can't, we can't change the community. We have to change our practices in the building and we should be looking at doing some different things to, think differently about like teaching and learning and again i think there's some really good points that are brought up in those conversations but it's i don't really know that we've gotten to consensus and i don't know that we've had a consistent enough block of time for us to actually get to those meaningful pieces before we make a change so for example we changed our schedules this year so that we're starting at a later start time next year we're changing our schedule so that we're actually going to have a different amount of periods that meet every day and a different like we're gonna have a rotation and the building's gonna feel very different so we start these conversations about teaching and learning and about stress and about signups and then we implement a change and the pace of the pace of the change and the pace of the conversations are not necessarily matched up and i think that's fairly reflective of our community so it's it's a it's a case where we're working on something that it's going to take 10 years to sort of sort out but a lot of the pieces are moving at the moment. And so from from my standpoint, it's hard to put into words exactly why we do all the things that we do, even if there were really good intentions behind why some of those decisions had started. Um, That's really interesting. Um, you know, here we're in a, a different situation where we have students that, uh, you know, honors AP level students that recoil at the idea of any outside homework. Um, and that aren't signing up for enough honors and AP level classes. Um, and so part of the reasoning behind me working with our gifted program is to ensure that our gifted students are signing up for honors classes at all. Um, there's a culture here that's maybe not pervasive, but it's common enough such that we have a lot of students that um, don't have lofty academic goals even if they are cognitively and intellectually capable of, of, you know, going above and beyond the expectations that are set for themselves. And so, uh, you know, we're trying to increase enrollment in those more rigorous classes. We're trying to increase the 
or, or change the way that students view those classes, seeing them as it's positive to have those um, challenges and it's positive to develop that work ethic, um, but not to the detriment of, of mental health, of course. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that for our students, there's, I mean, it, I'm talking about like a community of, as I said, we have 2000 students. They're, yeah. they're not widgets. They're not a monolith. They're enormously, it's an, Right. A diverse group, a population of students, but I think that the 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 culture, the pressure culture that exists within our school community, is healthy and positive and pushing for some students in a really good way, and we definitely have a subset within our school who basically judge themselves as either being good at school or not good at school, and their identity is heavily wrapped up in that. Yeah, and uh, you know changing that especially when you get different messages you have adults who are giving different messages peers that are giving different messages parents and you know friends of parents giving different messages we do not have a uniform sense of of what it means to be uh, like a healthy happy productive member of our community uh, i don't right. think that there's a, a very good uh we haven't come to a, a good enough sort of general ballpark of what that means. And so, you know, we're in the midst of that struggle. Um, I think, as I said, lots of good intentions are coming um, into this. You know, like you can hopefully you can see the the nuance yeah. and challenge of, of both wanting mental health from students, wanting students to have healthy levels of stress. And then the complexities of being in this giant building with many, many masters to serve. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> so. And, and one of the things that I've started to notice here, serving on different committees and, and trying out different, you know, administration, you know, adjacent tasks <laughs> in the building is not, um, we'll often start something and either finish it, not finish it, follow it through, but then not um, know whether or not our initial intentions were, or an initial problem was solved. Mm -hmm. um, and so... You know, we started to do more surveys to get feedback about um, whether or not changes that we're making are having positive effects or not. Are is anyone going to collect data to see if these new school changes that have been made in your building are doing what they were intended to do? I don't. Yeah. Is there a way to do that? <laughs> so I, this is you now hit upon another component that I've 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 sometimes asked. I was like, can we get the problem is with what, us is that, you know, since a lot of some of these changes ha have happened, we've had new superintendents, we've had new principals, we've had changes in administration and that sort of thing. And uh -huh. so where we embarked on this conversation about the goals of our our schedule change, for example, like the number of things that have were put on the table about reasons to change the schedule, the list was, you know, it was enormous. Right. And not all achievable. But right. so from a practicality standpoint, some of those things got morphed and some of those things got changed. And the communication about the process of narrowing things down wasn't always super clear. And so as a result, like by the time we got done and we have settled on these schedules, I had actually asked the question. I was like, all right, by what metrics are we going to measure whether or not this is effective? And I don't know that necessarily the decision makers in the building have figured out how they're going to necessarily assess yeah. how all of these changes are, the effectiveness of these various changes. Um, and so the, the answer is that is, I think, a responsibility of somebody who looks at data and asks those mm -hmm. questions like myself, I'm pushing some of those concepts now. Like, 
and and then the problem comes into play you know if it's not effective well is this policy just permanent now because we <laughs> um yeah there's, there's no data to show whether or not it was effective yeah um, well, and so. and I, I often say that it's like I, I feel like by between the time that the mission or the pro, the identify identification of the problem and the creation of the mission of why we're going to make a change, the time between the those two, the mission formation and the problem identification, a lot happens. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so by the time you actually have gone to we're going to put in this policy, sometimes the thread of the underlying problem to drive it is lost in that process. And some of that's natural and good because other problems might come up and you may realize, oh, we think this is the underlying problem. But again, in a building as big as ours and with as many different stakeholders that come in, um, yeah, it can be, it's really challenging. And I wanna fully say, uh, I think my administrators, they have a thankless, impossible job <laughs> that I would never oh, yes. that I would never want uh, because right. the reality is, is that, um, you know, hurting cats would be much easier than all of the different opinions and thoughts and wants and needs and, you know, stakeholders that they have to deal with in our building. Um, Absolutely. Oh, my, my students will ask me, you know, Mr. Crockett, uh, why don't you become a, a principal or an assistant principal? And I tell them, you know, well, they do all day uh, some of the things that I like doing the least. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and they don't get to do some of the things that I like doing the most, like working with, with you all and, and talking about biology. Yeah. Um, I, I really don't want to, you know, have to, tell my colleagues when they're doing a bad job or deal with, you know, upset parents or, um, uh, you know, which happens anyway, but, um, you know, to do that eight hours a day and then more, um, not really my cup of tea. I don't think. No, I, I, I've always said thought like the best part of the day is the working with the kids and I, I would not want to ever give that up. Um, I mean, that's, that's really the, the thing that I wouldn't want to give up, but as I've seen and learned about what they have to do from an administrative standpoint and the challenges of that job, it, it's not gotten any more appealing. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, so like, as I said, a lot of respect for the work that they have to do. And I don't think that I don't mean to trivialize the the challenges that they're making and how they have to come up with. Sometimes you have to come up with imperfect policies to deal with things. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I would want, I would say that, um, you know, my current principal, like, the way that they went about making our schedule change for next year, um, I was extraordinarily frustrated by the process. Like I found that, you know, like I felt like every time I went into a meeting, the goals of what we were trying to do had changed and I hadn't been in the room for those conversations. And I, I felt like we were barreling ahead. And the one thing I will say about our, our current principal is that when he sat down with our department to talk about and he did, he, they, the administrators came out and they talked to the departments and he came and he talked to our department I definitely got a sense of urgency from him that that we we don't we need to make a change at this point. Like we've made some tweaks, we've done some things, but we fundamentally the little things that we've been putting in place have not made the impact that they need to make on the the wellness of our students. That they've been trying all of these different policies, all of these different rules, all of these different subtle subtle things. Mm -hmm. And they have not moved the needle and the problem is not getting any better. The problem continues to get worse. And yeah. that it sounds like the problem is cultural. It um, is. And, and it, changing the schedule, how do you change culture. Yeah. Changing the schedule will shift culture. And I would yeah. say that the sense of urgency I got from him from that conversation, he was able to communicate in a way, again, just with words, without data, without, you know, like 
we're going to be able to do that. And then I, so I totally, I, I very much respected the, the way he communicated and how that came about. Uh, at the same time, that doesn't less and it, it lessened my frustration at that moment. That doesn't lessen my frustration on the next decision that gets made <laughs> that they have to do. Right. And it's not practical and reasonable to expect the principal to alleviate my frustrations every time I have them. Like sometimes you just have to say, you know what? Administrators have to make these calls. They have to do their job. I'm going to have to do mine. That's just right. what's going to happen. And I think that, you know, part of the maturing aspect of being a teacher is you sometimes have to realize there's going to be decisions that are above your pay grade and yep. nobody cares whether or not you like them. True. <laughs> You're but just going to have to do them. You can be frustrated at a situation and yeah. still appreciative of the administrators that have created the situation. Yeah. Um, and so you can have both. There are nuances in the world. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's been, a, I think, a growing experience for me over the last you know couple of years in particular of trying to to find my my way of both be appreciative and not let my frustrations get under my skin too much. So this podcast, right. you've interviewed me way more than I've interviewed you. I think you. Uh... <laughs> well, I've learned a lot, certainly. Um... All right. Well, let's get back to you. And what are sure. you looking forward to in your classroom in the next few years? Um, well, you know, this semester, uh, tomorrow's the first day of our spring semester. Yeah. And um, I have uh, no honors or AP classes. And, and I'm very excited uh, to have the chance to work with, you know, different types of students this semester than I did last semester. Um, there are different challenges. And, you know, I haven't uh, had an inclusion class in a couple of years. And so I'm very excited to um, get to think about, you know, some of the core nuggets of biology and how I, you know, teach some of the basic concepts, but teach them in ways that are much more comprehensible to especially English language learners. Mm -hmm. And so I'm excited by that challenge that's coming up. Uh, and then in the, within the next couple of years, um, you know, I, I hope one day I will be able to teach uh, AP biology and be satisfied in January. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that will ever happen, uh, but I would, uh, you know, one thing that I do hate about just teaching in a semester is now I have to wait until next August to um, have another go at it mm. uh, and to implement whatever changes are in my mind. Uh, and so I, you know, using more formative assessments, I think I need to start flipping a little bit more in the classroom to um, uh, get them access to some content, you know, at home, and then we can do more inquiry-based activities or um, just more reinforcement activities in class, since my students, um, with the level that they're at, really require what I think is a significant amount of just content reinforcement before um, they experience success with answering those AP style questions, mm -hmm. um, at least those AP style questions that require content background, because there, you know, there are some AP questions that, you know, you don't really need to know about the thing that this problem is about if you can, you know, answer the science behind it. Um, yeah, I think that um, I used to teach the course in a very, very content heavy manner. Um, yeah, I used to be. But yeah, like we used to march through Campbell, we'd get through the whole book or pretty darn close to it. Um, mm -hmm. And my students would do very well. And that was in the legacy form. And then when we right. switched, I, we didn't make as big a change. And so we still did lots and lots of content, like yeah. really heavy content driven course. Um, and I had this perspective of, yeah, you didn't really need to know that much content. Um, and as we swung the pendulum over towards process, uh, I would mm -hmm. tell you, I probably swung it too far and I'm not yeah. doing enough check-in of the content. Um, that's sort of the one thing I've learned in the first half of this year that I need to do more content check-in because yeah. those questions do require more content knowledge than I had initially. And my students had initially 
spoken about. Right. As I now have swung it and I'm seeing certain students make content mistakes mm-hmm. that my students never did before when I taught the con- like a very content-heavy course. Right. And I need to get better at teaching process stuff, although the process stuff they are getting better at, they're now making more content mistakes <laughs> right. as I've shifted the focus of, of my instruction and, and what we work on on a daily basis. Um, and, and I'm sure it's not just my students, but um, my students do forget a lot of the biology that they learn oh. their first time taking biology. Yeah. Um, in, in fact, maybe almost all of it. <laughs> um, and so it does feel like I'm not just trying to get AP biology fit into a semester, but also um, uh, pre-AP biology uh, again, <laughs> yeah. mixed with the AP biology. And so, um, I, and that's partly why I'm trying to invigorate my pre-AP class um, so that hopefully by the time they get to AP, even if they are forgetting a chunk of content, they might still remember more or at least have stronger skills. Yeah. Um, and, and so I have, more to build on uh, in AP. Yeah, maybe um, maybe less um, less ramp up time to remembering those concepts that they previously previously addressed. Right. Uh, right. Yeah, I'm I'm in the process of sort of thinking about what would monthly pretest check ins be look like. Like just giving them literally a here are 20 concepts or terms that we're going to be bringing up in the next month that you should be familiar with having taken a biology course. Right. And then something as simple as a uh, a self-grading Google pre-quiz yeah. like that they, again formative for them that they can say I'm going to take this and oh wow I don't remember the vocab about the parts of a cell or I don't remember right. the parts of you know the basic ecology structure even before we get into the more AP concepts um, you know that's something I'm thinking about how what does that look like and and how do I lower the, you know layer those in to give that scaffolding for students so that they don't have the fallacy of coverage oh we've already covered this before I don't need to spend right. time on this uh, and now with the department of your size your AP students how many possible teachers could they be coming to you from from biology. So realistic. like half a dozen, I expect. <laughs> yeah. So the majority of them come from either three or four, depending on the year that they were in, because we've had some turnover in our honors group. The majority of them right. come from honors biology, which the two of the AP biology teachers are two of the honors biology teachers. So, okay. and the other one for a long time was the AP and bio teacher. And then we've had a fourth member of our team come off and on for the last few years. So it's been three to four honors teachers, but there's also been two to three different of the level below. And usually we have a couple of those students as well. So it, yeah, it's fair to say anywhere from six to six to eight um, is yeah. possible with the majority of them being from three or four, uh, some of whom had me. So yeah. Right. And we are pretty unified as an honors curriculum. Like our honors curriculum, it, it it's not dramatically different if you have me or one of the other three honors teachers. We are we are, we have a collaborative teaching process. We use common unit schedules, common assessments. Mm-hmm. It is a it's a pretty uniform product. And I think that that makes things a lot easier for students that are going to then take AP, so that you know that they've all had you know about the same instruction in mitosis and meiosis before. Yeah. And so there aren't going to be major gaps that one class would have had that another one um, didn't. Absolutely. Uh, I I took over this program. We used to have one teacher who has since retired. She taught the AP biology and all of the honors biology sections. Mm-hmm. And so you know she already knew every student that she had in AP. <laughs> yeah. Um, and she knew exactly what they learned when they took her the first time. Yeah. And so when I took over, we then distributed our honor sections among two 
of us. And so I and another teacher um, split all of the honors biology sections. And, you know, uh, there are still some differences where we use common assessments and we, we commonly plan. Um, but there are things that I know that I teach that she doesn't, and there are probably things that she teaches that I don't. Um, and so when students come in to AP, even though there's only two of us, they don't necessarily have the same background in biology, um, even though we're both teaching the same standards uh, and assessing the same. Yeah. Um, and, and that makes some differences. Uh, and, and a lot of the students that I still have had our previous teacher, you know, three or four years ago for when they took honors biology, uh, the one who retired. Mm. And so uh, they're coming from a lot of different places. Um, and that makes it more fun. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so let's get to the, 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 when you're not teaching, what do you like to do? I don't know how you have any time to do anything between your master's program and the 900 extracurriculars do you do, but when you have some downtime, what do you like to do? Um, I'm never too far away from visiting a botanical garden, okay. uh, or a state park, uh, yeah. North Carolina has a passport program for their state parks. And so you can get stamps as you visit each of the state parks. That's neat. Um, and I have a little over a dozen now, so not too many, but um, it's a, it's a very nice uh, uh, reprieve to, to leave biology aside for a minute and then go to a different aspect of biology uh, out in nature. Yeah. Um, and so uh, that's usually what I'm doing when I'm not working with curriculum or uh, one of the PLCs. <laughs> that's very, very good time spent, particularly as a biology teacher. But even if you're, even if you were, oh, I don't know, like a Latin teacher or something, I think there's value of going out in nature. <laughs> oh yeah, knowing what the scientific names mean—that's cool too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So before we get to picks of the episode, do you have any questions for me? Uh well, you know, you asked me what I was looking forward to uh, doing in the classroom in the next couple of years. What changes are are you thinking about making uh, down the line? Uh, I have two, uh, well, I've got, I've got like a 900, but, um, I've got a couple of things that are on my, my short term to do list. Um, one of the things that I've worked on the last dozen years or so is, um, I've helped, uh, a very at risk population in our school, um, in an alternative program, get ready for our state assessment, um, which in Massachusetts is called the MCAS test. And mm -hmm. we are embarking on a change and we're in the midst of it. That's happening right now, moving from, um, the old standards to very NGSS like standards, uh, mm -hmm. in there. And so I've built this tutorial. That's basically a content slam tutorial that really gives in six weeks kids like a really deep dive review it's not the most elegant of pedagogy but it's the bare bones to help a student who needs to overcome this barrier to graduation in our state get ready mm -hmm. for it and it sunsets now in the next year it's not going to be a helpful tool for them this thing that i had built and used anymore so um, myself and another colleague who works with a similar population the two of us are are collaborating to build a new online tutorial system for the new mcas one that incorporates both content and skills and addresses all of the things that students would see so that a student in a five or six week review period before the test would have an opportunity to review all of the concepts from the year before they sit down and take this this graduation requirement. And so working with this colleague and talking to her about these different elements is been very invigorating because previously when I had done this work, it had always been just me and then reflecting myself and doing that. So to have this person who works with a similar population of students who struggle, she's bringing up things that are 
things that I've completely overlooked. She's coming at it from different perspectives. She's bringing new tools to it, and it's been it's been really invigorating to to deepen my understanding of how to help students who are at an at risk population get rid of get ready for this thing that could be this major point of stress, but hopefully is going to be this moment of of learning and appreciation and review that helps them bring together the ideas that they learned in their biology class. Um, oh, that seems fantastic. Yeah. So one, yeah. Go ahead. One thing about Massachusetts that I love is that you all release your um, exams oh, yeah. uh, every year. Uh, we haven't had a released uh, biology and of course tests in North Carolina since like 2013. <laughs> um, and so I, I pull for Massachusetts when I make my unit tests. Yeah. Um, and so I'm curious to see what that'll look like after they, they switch to NGSS. Yeah, they have released, so they've released a, a pilot exam version. That's like 29 questions. And uh, my colleague, so I was on the standard setting committee back mm-hmm. in 06 for the last round. And my, the, my colleague I'm working with is actually on the um, uh, assessment piece writing committee. So she has helps write assessment pieces um, and evaluate written pieces for them. So we bring sort of a wealth of experience from like behind the scenes on that. And I'm hoping to get back on the standard setting committee when this new assessment goes live in the next couple of years. Um, yeah. I'm hoping they, you know, they may not redo it. They may just say, well, we've already set standards. And so um, we're just going to plug these new assessment pieces in, but I'm hoping to get back onto something like that again. Uh, but I think I've got a pretty good sense and she definitely has a very good sense of what the types of questions they are going to be. And we've, I've gone to some, some workshops with some of the state folks. So, um, yeah, I think it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. I, I do like the deep dive on curriculum. I think I've got a really good sense of what the content pieces are. Um, and I think I have a pretty good idea of the skill pieces. And so it's going to be an interesting challenge to work on that. Um, so I'm kind of excited about that piece in there. I don't think I'll be bored from a curriculum development standpoint anytime soon. No, it yeah. does not sound like it. <laughs> yeah. All right. So now we're at picks of the episode. Uh, Dylan, what is your pick? Uh, well, you know, I begin the semester when I teach biology with classification, and uh, just recently we, um, not we, me personally, but a new salamander species was discovered down in Florida and Alabama um, a, related to mud puppies, and I cannot oh. wait to share this with students. Um, you know, when they think about new species being discovered, they uh, will conceive of this happening in rainforests or, <laughs> or far off exotic lands. Um, Florida might be an exotic land. But um, it's at least not too far off from where we are in North Carolina. So that's exciting. Yeah. I was going to say, you don't think Alabama is an exotic land? Um. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I do teach in a rural district already. So yeah. <laughs> it might be more familiar than it is uh, uh, unfamiliar. Yeah. As I was messaging with uh, my good friend Ryan Reardon, who teaches in Alabama yesterday, I think of him as a fairly unique creature. Um, uh-huh. so, as he was as he was tagging me on Facebook uh, during the Patriots game last night. <laughs> so yeah, that's a very exciting. I think that in, that in your backyard discovery thing is something that um, fits into that earlier mission that you were talking about. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. And what about you? So uh, yeah, there's a. I don't know if you've seen it, but um, Nature just recently put out an article about a, a study on screen time. And so actually I linked to the editorial about it. Some people at Nature did this, what they called a vast analysis uh, to tackle the 
defining question of the digital age. That's what the editorial sort of comes about in there. And uh, they did this really large cohort study. And what they found was even though there was a difference between the health and well-being of people who had like more screen time or less screen time, I'll give you the exact difference that they said. They found that the difference between them was 0.4%. So the author's overall calculations did find a statistical significance a negative association between technology use and well-being. That's how they framed it. And they said more screen time is associated with lower well-being in young people surveyed. But the effects were so small, 0.4% in the variation of being having good well-being versus low well-being, that they found that it had little practical value between the two. And I've already seen uh, an editorial in Wired and some others that call into question and point out that this study has major flaws and that sort of stuff. But um, one of the things I, I find my colleagues, uh, some of my colleagues at work often say is that, oh, students, they have, you know, they have their cell phones, they're always on their cell phones. And it's, it's such a such, you know, it's such a problem. That's why they're struggling. Right. Or that's what they, and it's looking for a simple, like a, a simple problem that if only we were to eliminate cell phones, mm-hmm. all would be right in the world. Like there's problems with students now. Cell phones are here now. Like if we eliminate cell phones, then that would be the problem or it's all about screen time. And I guess my issue with this is I've always been skeptical of somebody who wants the the magic bullet to to fix all of the health and well-being issues of people. Um, and so I think that this is some interesting data and it's something to take into account to say well-being is a complex <laughs> is, is complex and to have, have well-being is going to be more than just fixing screen time. Um, and so I think it's interesting and especially with data, I, I found that some of the reactions to the the data uh, were were very reactionary. you know people were very negative about the study, but it's like it's a study, it's data you know, I think you need to take it into account and think about it and say, all right, well, what new questions does this rise rather than uh, attack it? So I have a feeling this is going to come up in the news in the next few months um, in a few different areas because uh, nature is not a little publication. And so, no, it's not. I think a few people read it. Yeah. Um, And it's got that scientific merit. So it does. So, all right. Well, Dylan, this this was a great uh, far ranging conversation. Um, uh, So uh, thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you for the invitation. It was a lot of fun. All right. Let me give my credits. Uh, if you are listening to this episode and you haven't subscribed, please subscribe to Life of the School on whatever podcast player of choice you like to use. Uh, you can also support this episode by going to patreon.com slash lots and supporting. Um, the, those help a lot with uh, hosting fees and uh, maintaining my website and doing some of the audio editing and stuff like that. So uh, thank you very much to those who are supporters of my Patreon. Uh, I also put show notes up there and I also share uh, my episodes a a little bit earlier with them uh, in a Slack community. Music on this and every episode is provided by Jake Jenkins and Ex-Magicians. You can also get show notes at lifeoftheschool.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. And you can follow Dylan at Crockett Class, that's C-R-O-C-K-E-T-T-C-L-A-S-S on Twitter. And uh, you can follow us and, and hear our conversations there. All right. So thanks for joining me. And I will talk to everybody soon.